whatever. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 103, Ray. Yes. Wow. I'm excited to be here. How about mm. you? I'm not feeling it no. today, honestly. I'm fucking over it. I'm over it. Are you over the the Cold War, the concept of podcasting, no. talking to me? Yeah, podcasting. Okay. All right. No, I love I love uh-huh. you, but just you know, yeah. fucking fucking podcasting. You're looking for Fuck the it. new thing, the new what's, yeah. what's cool. Yeah. Not 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 feeling it this week. Yeah. I'm like fuck it, fuck it. <laughs> Don't want to do it anymore. Fucking <laughs> want to go do something else. Oh, okay. Well, you let me know what that is, and I will be right there by your side. Landscape gardening is great. <laughs> okay, I take that back. It's my new thing. Okay. I've never been able to keep a plant alive more than four days, but I figure can't be can't be that hard. Water, light. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how much water? They say, you know, oh, it's too much water. Then you, they go, oh, it's too little yeah, water. Yeah. I grew, I grew a tomato plant. I planted some seeds with Fox six months ago. We planted a tomato bush right. and some and a, and a flower. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what kind of flower it was. Um, did a little bit of a dad son project. Aww. They grew. Then they they grew big, like three foot, four foot wow. high, five foot high tomato bush. Tomatoes came off it. And died. Chrissy said, "Oh, you're not. You're giving it too much water." Yeah. Then she goes, "Oh, you're giving it too little water. Oh, it's got too little sun. Needs too. No, it's too much sun. It's got blight. It's like, oh, fuck, fuck it. This is. I go back to my worm farm. My worms are easier than this. But on a, on a brighter note, Fox is still alive, right? So you're getting something right. Hmm. Nothing to do with me, though. Really, it's Eli's mother. Okay. I've decided. No, I'm glad he's alive. I've, 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 yeah. I'm feeling like the world's biggest failure this week, no. right? I just feel like nothing, everything no. I turn to, everything I do turns to shit, right? Look, you know who are the, the world's biggest losers? When you put up that Facebook post about the thing about Game of Thrones and the people that said mean things to me, they're the biggest losers. Not you, Cam. Not you. It's them. Oh, that was and I'm so funny. I'm going to them all down one which, by one. Which cold, which Game of Thrones character. So thank you to the person who said that uh, the Cold War show was at the Game of Thrones of podcasts. <laughs> and uh, I, so I said on Facebook, for people who haven't seen it, which characters would we be? The general consensus is that you would be Reek and mm-hmm. um, uh, I would be Littlefinger, um, <laughs> which I think is pretty much right. Uh, <laughs> right on. <laughs> they called that, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mm. Mm. Okay, so yes. Okay, let's put all my misery behind us all and right. get on to. I do. Get on to the Cold War. Oh. Ho, yeah. <laughs> Ho Chi Minh. Yeah. Well, where we finished our last episode, Ray. Yeah. Um, I think it was September 1945. Ho. Yep. And Zap, his uh, military commander, got up in Hanoi. Gave a big independent. They declared the independence what, what? of Vietnam. Right. But at this juncture, they're still unsure about what role your country, the United States mm-hmm. of America, is going to play in their future. Yeah, yeah. But but you got to act like I mean because they've just made an announcement. Nothing's changed in the country. You know the Japanese are still there. The French want in. Um, the, there's other nationalist parties that want to take control. Nothing's changed by this. 
you know, rather impressive declaration of his. So they're, so they've taken over the city. So what? I mean, there's still a lot to do. So the first council meets, the first council of ministers meet, and now they've really got to get down to work. Well, yeah, and getting back to the American yeah, thing, yeah. like on one hand, uh, Ho still has this idealistic uh, concept, yes. I think, of America's stance against European colonialism that FDR had been sprouting for the previous few years, right. Atlantic Charter, yada, yada. Um, Potsdam, Yalta. But on the other hand, yeah. well, yeah, although at Potsdam they seem to be pulling back on the whole anti-colonialist uh, thing. By Potsdam, Truman's there. He's like, eh, colonialism, shimonialism, because <laughs> um, he was a bit of a Jew, Truman. No, no. <laughs> Jewman. Jewman. No. He spoke a bit of Yiddish. <laughs> I just wrote <laughs> I wrote this scene. I didn't have, you know, my, my movie, sorry to get off the topic, but I had an animation uh, that, that my animator sent me for the film the other day. Mm-hmm. He sent it to me and it just wasn't working. And it was my bad writing, not his... Um, it's about right. Peter, Paul, and James having their first meeting. It wasn't working, so I sat down. I had to rewrite it, so I rewrote it all in Yiddish with, the, with these guys. Hey, they say, so what have you been? No. So, Paul, so, Paul, <laughs> we hear you've been going around telling people about Jesus. What, what have you been telling? He goes, well, you know, James, I tell him Jesus was a real mensch. And he's uh, he died for our sins. He's coming back with superpowers. Yada yada yada. <laughs> oh, and Gentiles don't need to become Jews anymore. And and then Peter's like, Oh, vey, the the chutzpah on this mendrick. I am offended for everybody. Listen, listen up, you pots. You know Bobkis. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my god! Used the fuck out of myself. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anywho, yeah. So the Americans. Yeah. <laughs> so Truman, right? Yes. So Truman's like, yeah, you know, what's more important to us? I mean, on one hand, yes, America in concept, in theory, is against European colonialism, right. and as we've explained many times. That probably has less to do with any sense of the immorality of colonialism or or human rights, I think, more to do with the trade aspect of that. We have to keep in mind that the, the European colonies were all part of trade blocks with their colonizing country which made it difficult uh, for America to trade with those colonies, Mm -hmm. get their raw materials, sell them American goods without massive tariffs and and that kind of thing on it. So, you know, if if we're being really honest, yes, there's probably some human rights concerns in there. I'm not saying Americans are completely heartless, but from the view of the planners in charge of the State Department it's probably more about, honestly, uh, 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 removing the trade restrictions. If you can end European colonialism, you can open it up to free trade, open door policy, etc. Yeah. Um, but, you know, America is, is now, as everyone realises, the, the world's only real superpower. Mm-hmm. And it's an avowed, obviously, capitalist country. And even, 
and Ho realizes at this stage, as does Stalin and, and most of the planners, I guess, that they're probably going to end up in an economic war with the USSR right. and, and other communist countries should they arise. There are none other, no others outside of the USR, USSR at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore end up as enemies of the Vietnamese who, if Ho has his way, are going to be communists. And they might even strike a bargain with the French to let them have their old colony back. So Ho doesn't really know how America's going to play out. But as we're going to see over the next few episodes, he is doing everything in his power to be friendly to the Americans and to get the Americans on side. He is jumping through hoops. He is begging. He is pleading for the Americans to support the cause for Vietnamese independence. Uh, gets him nowhere, but he yeah. tr- he fucking he tries his hardest to be friends to the Americans. Does everything he can. You can, you know. He, I think he realizes, you know, this is the magic. If we can get the Americans to back us, right? We, we've we, we've got a maid in the shade, but um, he's realistic enough to know that it, it may not happen. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because as I was reading um, the Cliff Notes version of this subject, um, even with my cam-induced cynicism, I'm trying to pick apart Ho's actions and his words as I'm getting ready for this. And, and as try as I might, I mean, this guy genuinely cares about his country. Yes, he's playing He's playing an, uh, an actor. He's playing a role. He's playing, you know, he's telling everybody what they need to hear like a good politician does. But the reason he is doing it is all about the country, all trying to get their freedom for the first time. And as we go through here, just imagine this master chess player playing someone who's who's got all, all you know, all the advantages to them, and he's, he's outnumbered and he's outgunned. He's gonna all he can do is try to be sly and clever, and he does it brilliantly. But like you said, the odds are pretty much stacked against him. But that doesn't mean he's not going to try to give it everything that he has. Um, so as cynical as I was trying to be, I could not really pick this guy apart. Well, and the fascinating thing again, as we'll see, is pretty much everyone including American uh, uh, politicians and military who met him, uh, French, the French who met him. Yes. Uh, the Chinese maybe less so but because the, 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 he'd spent a lot of time in China and the Chinese were fairly cynical about him and they also had their own agenda, as we'll see. But the, 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 the Americans and the, the French who met Ho and went on to write their memoirs about this all said the same thing. This guy's fucking amazing. Like he yeah, really is. The they they loved him. They all, yeah. they all, yeah, they all loved him. They all said he's intelligent. He's humble. He's got a plan. He knows what's going on. Yeah. They, they're all like in awe of Ho, um, which is again, like it's sort of really amazing when you think about how it turned out. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the tragedies and how this all, this whole fucking thing could have been avoided. Anyway. Yeah. So the, the, the French, um, let's talk about the French. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of French, obviously, living in Vietnam, and, and they're mm-hmm. probably a little bit worried about what's going on when they, right. when they see uh, Ho declare independence. There was, I think, like 15,000 French still living in Hanoi in 1945. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Some of those are in prison. Um, but some of those are, are free citizens. They've survived the, the Japanese 
coup d'etat, and now they're watching the Vietnamese declare independence, they're probably a little bit worried about revenge, repercussions. I mean, let's be honest, French have treated the Vietnamese like crap for nearly 100 years. Um you might be, you might be, if you're French, you're living there, you might be like, shit, chickens yeah. coming home to roost. Um, <laughs> and many of them had already uh, taken the precaution of arming themselves um, right. as they saw this starting to unfold. They're getting ready. There were nearly 5,000 French prisoners being oh. held in the center of town. Right. And Archimedes Patty who um, we, we talked about, I think, in our last episode. He's like one of the senior American uh, guys on the ground, parachuted in. Um, mm. he, he was reporting that the, he could see that the French were getting ready to sort of take up, uh, take up arms and take their country back as soon as the French forces arrived in Indochina. Remember... The deal at Potsdam was that um, after the the Japanese had been defeated, the British and the Chinese are going to come in and clear uh, Indochina of the Japanese. I think the British are going to take the south from the 16th parallel down, mm-hmm. which includes places like Saigon, and um, and the the Chinese are going to come in from the north, where Hanoi is, Gulf of Tonkin, Tonkin area. They're going to come in there, and they're going to clear the 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 Japanese out. And then the the plan is that then that will give the give time for the French, who are just regrouping from the defeat of Germany and and the end of the Vichy's and all this kind of stuff. Then mm. but then the French will come in and basically take back power, and the French living there are getting ready for that. They're going to wait and then rise up and overthrow the Viet Minh. Yeah, yeah it's all about timing. And, and, the, and the good thing for the French is that, and I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction, and the good thing for the French is as weak as they are on the ground, Ho Chi Minh and the Viet, uh, Viet Minh have got their hands full. And I think you... I think you mentioned this. I can't remember. I mean, they're dealing with the famine. They're still trying to come up with ways to deal with that. Um, the spring, when spring came, they did have a pretty good harvest, but now we're back in August. We're back in September, and so they're starting to struggle again. The Red River has flooded, wiping out a lot of the rice fields uh, throughout the Delta. And again, this is just another example of Ho. So he's like, okay, what can we do? We have to come up with measures to fight this famine. So what he's going to ask the people to do is eat less. And he's going to lead by example. And, uh, and if you've seen pictures of Ho, there's not a lot of him to spare. So what he says is, every 10 days, I will go without food. And that food that I would have eaten will be given to the poor. So again, he's leading by example. Um, they're also trying to help with um, create communal lands for farming. They're trying to increase production. So again, this guy has got his hands full with the with the famine, much less the Chinese, much less the French, much less the British, and much less the mysterious Americans. He's trying to deal with real-world issues on the ground that his people are suffering through right at this moment. And you mentioned the French a minute ago. Obviously, they're, 
their control of this country has not benefited the people because roughly 90% of the locals could not read. And that was another thing Ho Chi Minh wanted them to work on. So it's like, we're going we're gonna to start working on this. We're going to help each other and teach each other how to read. We're going to have a general election. We're going to set up a government that's going to be based on democratic principles. We are going to lower taxes. We are going to start turning this around. But it's going to take time. And during all of this, they've got all these superpowers or powers breathing down their neck. Yeah, I like in the decree that was issued after mm-hmm. he formed this government where he's talking about the literacy. Um, it's very eloquent. It says, uh, let those who cannot yet read and write learn to do it. Let the wife learn from her husband. Let the younger brother learn from the elder. Let parents learn from their children. Let girls and women study harder. So mm. he wants everyone, women, men, kids, elderly, everyone needs to yeah. be able to read. And he, I think he did a pretty good job too. Um, uh, I think within like two years, they had massively increased uh, literacy in the country. So wow. they really they really took it seriously. And, you know, that's one of the things that you find um, – the communists, uh, when they take over these these countries that have previously been oppressed by colonial powers, uh, really take seriously. They're usually focusing on education. They're focusing on health care. They're focusing on more equitable distribution of land and because land is wealth, particularly for an agrarian society, the ability to grow food, feed yourself, feed your family. Um, so that was something else that, Ho was also doing, apart from the mm-hmm. the promise that they were going to have elections, and they also declared equality of all nationalities and freedom of religion, something that hadn't existed wow. under the French. Um, they mm-hmm. decreed that the tra- traditional mandarinate, mandarinate, it's a fucked up word, mm-hmm. mandarinate, <laughs> Why, ma- ma- mandarinate, mandarin at, mandarin it. Man, man, mandarinit, 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 man, man, mandarinit. Fuck. All right, the power of the people under the mandarins. Right. I had a, I ate a mandarinit the other day. It was very sweet. Picked it off my tree. Um, they, they were. That was going to be abolished. There would be people's councils in all the local areas. And as you say, they're going to lower tax rates, um, which means that uh, the government's going to be losing money. They're going to have to figure out a way to replace that. But right now, yeah. the most important thing for him is to get rid of a lot of the a lot of the taxes that the French had created. Um, he's, he's arguing for an eight-hour working day. Oh. Um, he's arguing that employers have to give employees advance notice if they're going to fire them. Uh, land rents in the country were reduced by 25%. All longstanding debts were abolished. Um, but mm-hmm. he didn't, at this stage nationalize any industries or, or any businesses there, um, wow. didn't really embark on any massive land reform programs to confiscate like the farmlands mm. of, of, of wealthy landowners and distribute them. He's, he's trying to be moderate. He's trying not to piss off too many people or look too <laughs> communist. Similar thing right. that, that Castro did 20 years later, 15 years later, 
um, when he takes over Cuba. Initially, they're trying to be fairly moderate, partly because they don't want to scare the Americans too much. Right. And they're trying to find a way, I think, uh, um, if you want to give them uh, the benefit of the doubt, they're trying to find a way to negotiate with the the elite, the landowners, uh, some sort of a compromise. Yeah. Um, of course, that rarely works. Uh, like I think I, I said when we did the Castro um, obits, he tried to negotiate with the American corporations that owned all the businesses in Cuba mm-hmm. um, some sort of a deal where they could take over all of their assets in Cuba and pay them back like over 20 years because they had no money because Batista had raped the treasury. Right. He said, we want to, you know, just give us a credit for 20 years. We'll pay you back with interest. And the American country companies were like, no, fuck you. Wow. And he was like, all right, well, we, we need these factories, man. Right. Like we, we need the telephone working. We need the factories. If you won't let, the, won't let us buy them off you on terms, then mm-hmm. we just have to take them over. We, we don't have any. We'd rather not. We'd rather buy them off yeah. you. But if you won't let us we're do that, we're just going to take them, right? right. They're, yeah. You know. So um, Ho's trying to be delicate about this as well, um, and, and during the during the Pacific War, um, in his in his writings and his speeches, he'd made it clear that there would be a, a democratic stage that would follow the end of the war. General insurrection. There would be a, a, a democratic mm-hmm. process. Um, before they get into maybe a full-on communism, he sees it as a process. We'll have democracy, and then you, you, as I've said many times, you know, the the the, the view of Marx, um, at least, was that communism is the end point of a process. You don't go straight from oppressed colonial agrarian society to communism. That that jump isn't really going to work. How it works, um, right. despite what. You know, yeah, you have to go through the phases of democracy. You have to build up a middle class. Then eventually, uh, when you have all of the infrastructure working, you can look at moving to socialism and then eventually to communism. So that was his plan. We're not going to jump too far too quickly. Um, But he wasn't able to control all of the people at the local level um, that that wanted to get revenge. Um, There were instances of village uh, uh, notables, mandarins who were beaten, arrested, executed Mm. without trial, people settling personal scores. You know, you can imagine when you've been treated like shit and your family's been treated like shit for generations and all of a sudden you get the power back. Some people are like, you know, I want revenge, motherfucker, and and you can't really blame them for that. But Ho did try and contain that as much as possible. Um, But, you know, when people have been brutally oppressed for you know, decades, a hundred years almost, um, stuff's going to flare up. You you can't control that necessarily. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Saigon, mm-hmm. uh, uh, on September 2nd, crowds were gathering in front of the governor's palace downtown in Saigon, which, again, for people not familiar with your uh, geography of Vietnam, it's down the south of the right. Dragon's Tail, I think if it's a do you think of it as a dragon when you look at Vietnam? It's sort of got this head up the top and then a long body and then a big tail down the bottom. Or maybe a seahorse. It looks like a seahorse. <laughs> Vietnam. Seahorse or a, a dragon. Anyway. 
Saigon is right down in the tail. Hanoi is right up in the, the top of the head. Right. If you think about a seahorse, just think about a seahorse. Okay. That is what Vietnam looks like. Um, and, and again, Hanoi, Tonkin is the head. Saigon, Cochin, China, as they would refer to that area at the time, uh, is right down in the tail. There you go. Easy. Cameron, geography by animals. That's how I do it. Um, so, obviously, Ho is up in the north in Hanoi, um, but he has, uh, uh, you know, representatives for the Viet Minh um, down in the south. By the way, Saigon is now known as Ho Chi Minh City, if you're trying to put mm-hmm. it on a modern map. Nice. They uh, all the, these crowds were gathering on September second uh, to celebrate Independence Day. Obviously, Ho's giving a speech up in Hanoi. People are gathering, listening to a radio broadca- broadcast of it uh, down in Saigon, and tensions are running high between the Vietnamese and the French in the city. And demonstrators began to march down the main street. Fire uh, shooting broke out, small arms fire broke out in front of uh, a church. There's a square in front of a church. Somebody starts firing off their guns. Crowds start rioting. Angry youth start, uh, Vietnamese youth start uh, 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 entering into buildings around this area looking for French snipers who are firing off these shots. Sort of a bit of chaos breaks out and a French Catholic priest who was sympathetic to the Vietnamese, he was loved by the Vietnamese, mm-hmm. um, was struck by a bullet and killed as he was standing on the front of the church, uh, on the steps out the front of the church, watching what was going on. And then shit went crazy. Um, this popular French priest killed, um, mobs start raiding homes, they're looting shops. It's French on Vietnamese, violence breaks out. Uh, you know, the, the local colonial press later talked about it being a massacre. Some called it Black Sunday. Local reports said about 100 uh, Europeans died. Internal Japanese reports, though, said only about four or five French were dead, about 14 Vietnamese casualties, but maybe 100 injured. But the French promised to take revenge once they retook control of the city. And um, some, you know, took out their anger on the Vietnamese that they could find, um, particularly when the British arrived. But we'll get into that a little bit later on. But there was one guy I, I read about, uh, Pham Nok Tak. He was a wealthy Vietnamese doctor who was actually the uh, Democratic Republic of Vietnam's first health minister, DRV. But he was married to this pretty blonde French woman Uh-oh. and she got her teeth punched in that day, knocked out because she was God. married to a Vietnamese guy. Yeah. Um, so a lot of tension, a lot of violence breaks out. So literally the same day that um, Ho declares independence, violence uh, breaks out uh, with the French in Saigon. So that is, in many ways, you could say that is the beginning of the first French Indochina War yeah. was um, the was Independence Day. Yeah, now let's make it even more complicated for Ho Chi Minh. So, as you were saying a couple of minutes ago, that he's trying not to do anything too extreme. He's trying to be moderate, trying to help the people. Obviously, to try to get the people on his side, because what he wants to do is have a united front for when the French or it's or the Chinese, when they come. So in the last days of August, the first advanced units of the 150,000-man Chinese force 
under General Lu Han, a warlord from the Yunnan province, enters northern Indochina. And with these Chinese are the American military advisory team commanded by Brigadier General Philip E. Gallagher. So on September the 9th, the Chinese proper enter Hanoi, and I think everybody is shocked by their look. They look starved, they're ragged, the uniforms are ragged, they're torn, and most of them have their families with, with them. So this is not a normal either occupation or a law and order force that's been sent down from China. And once they're in Hanoi, as you can imagine, they don't behave very well. Um, Colonel Archimedes Patty of the OSS wrote about them, and he pretty much said the sidewalks, doorways, and and side streets were cluttered with Chinese soldiers and camp followers hovering over bundles of personal belongings. With With household furnishings and military gear strewn everywhere, many had staked claims in private gardens and courtyards and settled down to brew tea do household chores, and start the laundry. So this did not look like a top-crack unit of Chinese military personnel. This was just some force that had obviously been through hell and had suffered a lot. They've got their family with them because there's probably a certain amount of lawlessness in that part of China. And these people are seeing, you know, what parts of Hanoi are in decent shape. And they start taking things because, again, that's what you do when you're suffering and you're the only ones who've got guns in the area. Yeah, I read reports saying um, that the Chinese seemed amazed at the level of um, civilization in, in Hanoi. Uh, Obviously, the French the French had come in and there was electricity. Right. A lot of these Chinese troops had never seen electricity yeah. before. They, they, they were like flicking lights on and off and fans on and off. They were like, holy shit. It's a bit like when the Russians arrived in Germany yes. at the end of World yes. War Two. Like, so, oh my God, yeah. look at how you people live. This why is crazy. You, why did you invade us? We don't have shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, the guy who's leading the Chinese troops, um, Lu Han, is a warlord mm-hmm. from uh, the Yunnan province just over the border. Um, and General Shao Wen, who had sort of been Ho Chi Minh's patron, right back when he was living in China earlier on, he's leading another army uh, led by General Zhang Fakul, his his Guangxi army uh, across another part of the border. Mm-hmm. So, the, yeah, they're estimated there's going to be like 150 to 180,000 Chinese wow. coming into the north. Right. I think the British sent about 20,000 into the south God. under General Gracie, who we'll get to in a minute. Chinese sending nearly 200,000 <laughs> Men in, and um, you know, Ho. Uh, on one hand, you know, I think he he has a better relationship with the Chinese than the um, French, but mm-hmm. also he doesn't trust the Chinese, right? Um, and he sees the Chinese as wanting to basically take control of Indochina, which they had controlled Indochina for a thousand years the yeah. last time they came in. Um, so he is trying, as you said earlier on, like he's trying to negotiate with all of these different parties. He's trying to maintain control, but keep the Chinese at bay, the the, the French at bay, the Americans and the British, uh, and the nationalists. So when the Chinese came in, they brought Vietnamese nationalists who had been in exile, as as Ho had been in China. The nationalists are basically the Vietnamese Kuomintang. They're not communists, mm-hmm. um, and they, 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 I think from Ho's perspective, they're these Vietnamese nationalists who are going to try and, they're revolutionaries, they're going to try right. and take power, 
but they're going to do it in alliance with the Chinese, and he's worried that these people will just let the Chinese come in and, you know, you'll, you'll, they'll be swapping one set of masters for a new set of masters. Mm-hmm. Um, but with regard to the, the French, he said, we must avoid military conflict. But when they arrive, we must direct the masses to demonstrate against French plots to restore their old power in Indochina. Hmm. He realizes that they're not, they don't have the military strength to take on any of these people, even the French when they arrive. He says they have to avoid military clashes with the British and the Chinese. They have to develop friendly relations with both governments. Um, But they, they need to use strikes they need to to mobilize the masses not fo- not not go to war just demand independence it's almost like he's advocating for like a gandhiesque right uh, uh peaceful revolution because he knows they they don't have the the weapons or the the training or whatever to fight a head to head military battle with these guys he has to try and avoid fighting as much as possible um, and just try and make friends and and just advocate. Hey, listen, it, it's the right thing to do. They have to mm. they have to argue for the morality of giving these people independence rather than going toe to toe with them if they can all avoid it. Right, and 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 just officially, the Chinese were there to um, take the arms away from the Japanese. And as, and, and I was shocked by this. I don't know about you, Ken, but I'm reading page after page after page. And it seems to take a very long time to get all the guns from the Japanese, but we'll go into that later. But, uh, so there, yeah, they're supposed to be there to accept the surrender of the Japanese. And like you said, if they start fighting, that's just going to give the French the excuse that they're looking for. Oh, look at them. They're lawless. They don't They can't handle themselves. They're not politically mature. We need to come in. They need us to come in and retake the country again. So again, Ho's got this balancing act going on. He's doing the best he can. Yeah. So as the Chinese come in, it's not long before the British get there and again that's just another adversary on Ho's chessboard that he has to deal with yeah so on the 12th of September 1945 like a week and a half after Ho declared their independence the British and Indian troops landed in Saigon Um, again part of the Potsdam agreement the British are going to free the southern part of Vietnam or Indochina uh, from the Japanese and prepare the way for the return of the French. Mm-hmm. Now, the British commander was a guy called Major General Douglas Gracie. Complete hard ass. Um, <laughs> spent most of his career before this sort of um, in India. He had the 20th Indian Division under his control, mostly Indian and Gurkha. Right. Units. Do you know about the Gurkhas, Ray? I know about Gurkha cigars. Yeah, <laughs> they're not. They're, they're sort of hit and miss. Gurkha cigars. Yes. I, yes. Remember when I was at a cigar event in Vegas in 2011? I went to the Gurkha stand at the cigar uh, retailers conference, and I got like 20 Gurkhas for free from the guy there to try. Nice. And yeah, well, no, half mm-hmm. of them were good, and the other half I just ashed. I was like, "Nah, this is shit," yeah. you know. Yeah, and I ne- never really had a lot of success with Gurkhas. I know some people who love them. Well, anyway, the Gurkha units were mostly uh, Nepalis, I think, from Nepal. Mm-hmm. Um, had wonderful mustaches, that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, as soon as he arrived, Gracie, the British commander, said 
The question of the government of Indochina is exclusively French. Oh, shit. So he's, he's not fucking around. He doesn't care about the Viet Minh. He arrived on an American C-47, walked straight past the Viet Minh delegation that were waiting on the tarmac Ooh. for him, walked up to a group of Japanese soldiers and left. So, hey, can I get right with you? And then yeah. when the Viet Minh leaders uh, in the south... Sort of, the, they were called the Committee for the South. It was a, right. sort of the Viet Minh and a loose coalition of the the Nationalist uh, Party leaders. They were um, trying to meet with uh, Gracie. He refused to meet them, uh, and in fact, uh, had them evicted from the Governor General's palace where they'd set up. He later wrote, "They came to see me and said welcome and all that sort of thing." <clears throat> I should have British. They came to see me and. <clears throat> They came to see me and well, toffee, <clears throat> toffee military. Yeah, here we go. <clears throat> they came to see me and said welcome and all that sort of thing. It was an unpleasant situation, and I promptly kicked them out. They were obviously communists. So after his time yeah. in the British Army, he basically, you know, yeah. his view of the world that colonial rule over Asian territories was. Inevitable, correct, and obviously what Jesus wanted. So uh, <laughs> that was his attitude towards the whole thing. Now, I want to talk a little bit about his commander-in-chief. Now, the commander-in-chief of the British mm-hmm. was Lord Mountbatten, uh, uncle of Prince Philip, Duke okay. of Edinburgh, second cousin once removed of Queen Elizabeth II. And the French had persuaded... Right. Lord Mountbatten to to allow Gracie to declare martial law after all the riots broke out on Independence Day. Now, do you know what happened to Mountbatten later in life? Uh, no, I don't. Tell me. Bit of a side note here, but uh, I love this story. So, like toffee, toffee, you know, uh, uh, British aristocracy, arrogant as fuck, this guy. Yeah. So arrogant that his summer holiday home, Casaborne Castle, Classyborn Castle, was um, in Ireland, little seaside village in Ireland, uh, Mullagmore. Right. To be sure, to be sure, it's in Mullagmore, County, <laughs> County Sligo in Ireland. So, you know, the British have occupied Ireland and he would go there to his little sea. So anyway, 1979, 27th of August, um, he, he goes fishing um, off the coast of his, his this little town. Mm-hmm. Um, this little town, by the way, this village where his holiday house was, was only 12 miles away from the border with Northern Ireland, 19 kilometres. Um, oh, you know, so it's just up right. the road from Northern Ireland. So anyway, yeah. 27th of August, 1979, Mountbatten goes out on a boat, uh, the Shadow Five, which is like fucking evil. It sounds like, you know, an emperor, an evil pope's name, Shadow the Fifth, Shadow the Five, went, um, went out lobster potting and tuna fishing on his wooden boat. Um, little did he know that an IRA member, Thomas McMahon, by the way, uh, my uh, uh, grand, Scottish grandmother was a McMahon, comes from Irish McMahon, so right. I'm probably related to this guy, Thomas McMahon. Yeah. He had definitely. slipped onto the right. boat the night before and attached a radio-controlled 
bomb weighing 50 pounds, 23 kilograms on, on the boat. <sighs> and when Mountbatten was on board the next day, just a few hundred yards from shore, the bomb was detonated. Boat was destroyed by the blast. Mountbatten's legs were blown off. Uh, he was 79 years old at the time, pulled alive from the water by some nearby fishermen, but died from blood loss before being brought to shore. Also on the boat were his elder daughter, Patricia, a.k.a. Lady Brabourn, her husband, John, Lord Brabourn, their twin sons, Nicholas and Timothy, John's mother, Doreen, the Dowager Lady Brabourn, and Paul Maxwell, a young crew member, um, they were all injured. Except the twins were killed, Nicholas and Paul. They were aged 14 and 15. Uh, sorry, they, they couldn't have been twins. Oh. Nicholas was 14. Paul was the crew member. He was 15. He was died. One of the twins and the crew member died. The others were seriously injured. Lady Brabourne, the, the dowager lady, uh, she was 83. She died the next day. The IRA issued a statement saying, the IRA claim responsibility for the execution of Lord Lewis Mountbatten. This operation is one of the discriminate ways we can bring to the attention of the English people the continuing occupation of our country. The death of Mountbatten and the tributes paid to him will be seen in sharp contrast to the apathy of the British government and the English people to the deaths of over 300 British soldiers and the death of Irish men, women and children at the hands of their forces. Six weeks later, the leader of Sinn Féin, Gerry Adams, said... The IRA gave clear reasons for the execution. I think it is unfortunate that anyone has to be killed, but the furor created by Mountbatten's death showed up the hypocritical attitude of the media establishment. As a member of the House of Lords, Mountbatten was an emotional figure in both British and Irish politics. What the IRA did to him is what Mountbatten had been doing all his life to other people. And with his war record, I don't think he could have objected to dying in what was clearly a war situation. He knew the danger involved in coming to this country. In my opinion, the IRA achieved its objective. People started paying attention to what was happening in Ireland. Yeah. Good gracious. So, I don't know. Well, that's, you know... Yeah, uh, This is the guy who gave permission for Gracie to declare martial law in Saigon in 1945. Do you know Gracie's nickname? Um, uh, I, did, I, did, I don't have it in my notes. I did That's read fine. it somewhere, yeah. yeah. The Bruiser. Ballbuster? So, the Bruiser. No, the Bruiser. <laughs> Not exactly a politician. Yeah, so... You, so, yeah, so as far as the uh, riots that you were talking about, on September 12th, um, French POWs were recently released from jail. And uh, they start looting stores. They start attacking Vietnamese pedestrians. In fact, a few of the pedestrians were hung. Now, Gracie is starting to panic a little bit about this, but he does not have enough men to stop them. So he turns to the only power that can stop them. <clears throat> And that's the Japanese. I'm not sure why they still have guns, but they do. Um, but the point is, um, he orders the Japanese, and this you're going to have to help me with this, Cam. The Japanese do not, per Gracie, disarm the French. They disarm the Vietnamese. And the Japanese are told to evict the committee for the South, like you said earlier, from the Governor General's residence in Saigon. So these people are attacked by French POWs, they're harassed, the citizens are harassed, and then the British have the Japanese 
disarm and push out the Vietnamese. I mean, this is total bullshit on on their side, but I guess these people who just can't get a break, I guess just because the French and the British are working in cahoots and they know exactly what they want to, you know, the future of this country to be. I can't fucking get over that, man. He rearmed the Japanese. Yes. Yes. To disarm the Vietnamese. Like what the actual fuck, man? He rearmed the Japanese. He was there to disarm the Japanese. Yeah. And he rearmed the Japanese in order to fight the locals. Yeah. Who were, like, who were victims. Seriously. Yeah. Get yeah. fucked. Yeah. To, to, <laughs> to, to fucking. God damn, man. The fucking British. But don't get me started. <laughs> But just the idea of giving the Japanese who have been tormenting these people and a lot of other people all over Asia, don't get me wrong, but they've been tormenting them for quite some time, who are now being made the local law officials of this area of of Saigon. This is just absolutely insane. But I think as far as the bruiser is concerned, hey, whoever can get the job done gets the guns. And that's the Japanese. And that's what happened. Going back to martial law, I yeah. just wanted to mention Penny Marshall, oh, who died this yeah. week. Yeah, Shlemiel, Shlemazel. Uh-huh. <laughs> Penny Marshall of uh, Vernon Shirley, I guess, for my yeah. generation. She went on to become a great film director, a lot of great sort of rom-coms and uh, just massive, massive impact on... Uh, entertainment from the 70s through to the 2000s. Um, Obviously, sister of Gary Marshall, you know, creator of fucking endless things. Uh, He died a few years ago too, I think. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, she died this week. Just, yeah, Penny Marshall, fantastic. Laverne and Shirley, classic, classic. We are Lenny and Squiggy. Hello. Oh, my God, it took (laughs) me a while. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. Thank you. I still can't get over uh, Michael McKeon in um, yes. Better Call Saul. Yes. I still see him as Lenny. Good you know, I just see him Lenny. Back. I think he was Lenny. Yeah. 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 And, and then Spinal Tap, obviously, went yeah. to that too. And it was Rob Reiner who was, grew up with Penny Marshall and Gary Marshall and, um, you know, Love he and that. his dad and Gary. Anyway, they're all connected. Yeah. Anywho, um, yeah, so uh, it's, shit is going down in Saigon. Um on the night of the 22nd of September, Jean Thedi, mm-hmm. <laughs> I never did learn how to pronounce his name. So not only does he give the Japanese the guns to uh, restore order, but he also says that uh, the British would maintain law and order until the restoration of the French colonial, colonial authority. So like you said earlier, I mean, they're just putting it out there. There's no, I mean, you can talk all you want, but the British and the French have already got this worked out amongst themselves. And now the question is what, if anything, are the Vietnamese going to do? So on the night of the 22nd of September, Jean Sedi, who was the French commander, ordered his troops to take control of key installations in the city and evict the Vietnamese government from the latest headquarters that they moved into, the Saigon City Hall. So they got kicked out of the Governor General's residence. Now they're getting kicked out by the French. Damn. And in the process of that, several Vietnamese soldiers were killed, were yeah. taken prisoner. And by the next morning, the, the 20,000 French residents who still lived in Saigon woke up and rejoiced 
to yes. discover that Saigon was once again under French control, being under Japanese control for a few years. Then it was under uh, uh, Vietnamese control briefly. Right. And now the French are back, baby. <laughs> and they basically took to the streets just massacring uh, Vietnamese, uh, men, women, and children at yeah. random, uh, beating them up, killing them, uh, hanging them. There yeah. was a there was a Paris-based photojournalist, Germain Krul, who had arrived with the British on September 12th. She wrote in her diary, these men, talking about the French, these men who were supposed to be the soldiers of France, this undisciplined horde whose laughing and singing I could hear from my window, corrupted by too many years in the tropics, too many women, too much opium and too many months of inactivity in the camp, were now wandering through the streets as if celebrating the 14th of July, their guns slung over their shoulders, cigarettes dangling from their lips. On the Rue Carana, soldiers driving before them a group of Anamites bound, slave fashion, to a long rope. Jeez. Women spat in their faces. They were on the verge of being lynched. That night, she realised only too well what a serious mistake we had made and how grave the consequences would be. Instead of regaining our prestige, we had lost it forever. And, worse still, we had lost the trust of the few remaining Anamites who believe in us. We had showed them that the new France was even more to be feared than the old one. Right. So that's a French person's yeah. uh, 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 observance, observances, obser observations. There's observations. The there we go. I was looking for. <laughs> observations, yeah. Now, as yeah. you mentioned, Gracie started to panic and he ordered the former prisoners back into prison as a punishment, but pretty much the damage was done. Um, yeah. The Viet Minh leaders in the South on the 24th mobilised a massive general strike that paralysed Saigon. French civilians barricaded their houses or tried to hide in public buildings like the old Continental Hotel. There was gunfire, mortar rounds being fired throughout the city. The Viet Minh uh, attacked the airport, stormed the local jail to liberate hundreds of Vietnamese prisoners that were there. And, you know, maybe in some ways you could say that this was the beginning of the Vietnamese War of Liberation against France. The official war doesn't start for another year, yeah. but this is probably in Saigon where it started because the British and the French went crazy. Was that on September 24th? I missed the date. I'm sorry. Yeah, September 24th. And I've got this one quote here I wanted to um, read out. Uh, Gracie's chief political spokesman was asked... But why? Why would you not talk with the Vietnamese before the shooting started? Because you cannot negotiate when a pistol is held at your head, he said. You mean you can negotiate only when you hold a pistol at the other party's <laughs> head? And the guy just shrugged, apparently. So that is correct. Just the British, yeah. the British approach to this was just typical British you know, uh, yeah. uh, colonialist attitudes, even though it wasn't their colony. Um, I guess they, you know, it's the golden rule. Do unto others' colonies as you would have them do <laughs> unto your colony. 
<laughs> They're like, if the French came into India, we'd want them to restore order to our darkies and give us back control. Right. So we should do the same for them. That's the gentlemanly thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, so on that same day, September 24th, uh, several hundred armed Vietnamese go through a French residential um, section screaming out death to Europeans. And like you were saying, that's total chaos. 150 Europeans were murdered. Another 100 were taken hostage and never seen again. And of those 150 that died, a lot were uh, women and children. And as you can imagine, this violence, this is just getting out of control. It spreads to other rural areas. Um, The Committee for the South calls for another general strike and they also want the locals to leave Saigon because now it's gotten to the point even though the Viet Minh aren't ready for war this is just getting out of hand they want the locals to leave because they're going to put the entire area under siege and they're not allowing the French leave so to leave so this is quickly getting out of hand even though the Vietnamese aren't ready for a traditional war it seems to be coming their way somebody has to do something because uh yeah the British um Gracie is completely overreacting to everything, and he is not helping matters at all. He's escalating things, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, this this, um, attack, this massacre that happened on the night of the 24th um, in the the French district of Saigon. Yeah. um, People, uh, a lot of the people who were were taken were Eurasians, mixed race. Right people were treated brutally. They were mutilated, tortured, beaten, raped, and killed. This is Vietnamese doing this to European and Eurasians. Now, some of the French officials tried to pin this massacre on the Viet Minh or the the DRV government, Democratic Republic of Vietnam, Mm -hmm. in order to discredit them. But, in fact, the, the French intelligence services and the British knew it wasn't the Viet Minh. Uh, who were responsible for it. In fact, one British officer went so far as to say that the Viet Minh was not an identity during the massacre. Um, and the French, the commander of the French, ruled out the DRV as being involved in this. French, British, and American investigations all agreed that the Bin Swen was it was responsible for it. Now, the Bin Swen was a local crime syndicate Mm. that ran vice operations in Saigon. They'd been around since the 20s. They were sort of quasi-criminal revolutionaries. Um, Like we would be. (laughs) (laughs) We're too nice. Too nice to be criminals, right? Okay, sure. (laughs) Give me all your stuff or I'm going to kill you, but please, sir. Oh, okay. Off you go. Yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Take this, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was talking to Chrissy again last night about you and I doing a true crime series, and I said the thing is we have to find a criminal right. who's getting away with it. And I thought, fucking Ray, he's the criminal, <laughs> does nothing, takes half my money. Ray is how does he get away with this? That's what we should investigate. Yeah, the Ray, the, can, the 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 Ray file. You can how does Ray me. get away with right. it? Right. Yeah. 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 How does he do it? He puts on this act like, oh, well, I'm just a bit slow. I can't do it. Everyone feels sorry for him. It's Meanwhile, he's going, <laughs> he's going, <laughs> bubble boy strikes again. Do you have a little calling card with a bubble and a boy? Oh, and you just good. leave it at the scene of your crimes. That's bubble good. boy. Bubble, bubble boy strikes. Boy here. Yeah. Like the strike team would throw a card on guys that they beat up. Nice. Strike team. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, getting back to the Ben Swin. 
Um, now, uh, recent investigations in Vietnam, like in the last 10 or so years, have also uh, revealed that the DRV's own internal investigation at the time came to the same conclusion that it mm. was the Bin Swen. Now, uh, the DRV commander-in-chief of the armed forces in the south of the time, Nguyen Bin, not to be confused with Bin Swen, who was right. the, <laughs> who was the crime syndicate, right. but Nguyen Bin, who was the commander-in-chief of the DRV, he arrived in November 1945. He ordered his men to track down and bring to him the members that had been uh, that had perpetrated the massacre. Right. Um, wow. And then they brought before him a guy called Bar No, a.k.a. Lee Van Coy. Mm-hmm. Um, he appeared before a, a military court, found him guilty, sentenced him to death. And then I love this. So he was sentenced to death. Nguyen Bin walked up to him, handed him a pistol, right. looked him in the eye, and told him to kill himself on the spot. Oh. And he did. But wh- why? 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 Is this like the Italian mafia? I don't know, man. I mean, why would he we do don't that? want? I mean, we don't want your blood on our hands. Kill right. yourself, I guess. Okay. Maybe if you do it, then we will be nice right. on your family. I don't know if I there was any yeah. motivation there, but I just love that as a scene. Just hands yeah. him a gun. Guy puts the gun up to his head and shoots himself in the head. Jeez. So. As all this is going down, Dewey, Colonel Dewey of the U.S. Army and the OSS, goes up to Grace. He wants to talk to Gracie. He's like, this is insane. You've got to do something. Gracie, um, clearly not an advocate of DBAC, refuses to even see him. In fact, Gracie was blaming a lot of these troubles on the OSS. Look at you Americans who were working with the Viet Minh in the first place, letting them get established, teaching them things. I blame you. So he wouldn't even see the American who wanted to bitch about things clearly getting out of hand. And I think um, Dewey might have ended, excuse me, I think Gracie might have ended with, and you can get the hell out of the country as well. Yeah. Oh, dear me. Well, listen, I think that's where we're going to end episode 103, Ray. Um, okay. It's basically, the, 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 we're into the start yeah. of the Indochina War. In the south, yeah. in the north, Ho Chi Minh is still trying to keep it copacetic. Right. <laughs> um, he's trying to play a major chess game, as you said. Right. But uh, in the south, it's, uh, it's going crazy. Yeah. So with that... We'll be back next week with more of the uh, first Indochina war.